how I like to, to start these conversations is just about an individual's journey and rear their, their career arc to, to where they're at now. And yours has been really interesting. You worked at some massive, massive companies <laughs> that a lot of people would know of, then started your own with the Global Language Project and now on to, to new profits. So just take us a little bit uh, through your career journey and then we'll, we'll get into what you're, what you're up to now. Yeah, absolutely. But first of all, you know, thank you so much for having me. This is just like, I think it's always a privilege to be able to, to share your story and work um, with a larger audience. My story starts beyond and before I got to corporate America. You know, I was raised by my grandparents. Um, my grandfather worked at a local Chrysler factory mm. in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He raised me. I was able to go to school, go to grad school. And I often tell people it was like our version of the American dream. And as I advanced in my career, I saw that those opportunities really didn't exist anymore for many people. You know, I saw people working two and three jobs and they still weren't able to provide for their family. So mm. I often really thought about how privileged I was as I started my career in entertainment and worked in consumer products for brands, you know, Nokia, Viacom, and did international marketing development. So, but I've always saw myself as this, like, in my eyes, this small Midwest girl, right? <laughs> now, like, doing work in Shanghai, you know, doing work in Europe and Latin America. Wow. And people would often ask me, you know, how were you able to do this? And so I had a, spent many, much of my time just really reflecting on my career path and why my life was different than some of my classmates, right? That I went to school with who weren't afforded the same opportunities. And, and when I look back at it, you know, education was really key. My grandparents early on moved me from a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American. Um, the schools were low performing and, you know, they moved to a small area, rural area um, where the schools were better and, and made that sacrifice. The schools weren't diverse. And there's trade-offs in all of that, right? right? right. Um, you know, I was the only, you know, African-American student in my grade in that third grade. And so that was really difficult. So I, I often think about the choices that parents make. And so as I was making it in my career, I always thought about how I could get back. And, and you'll hear the story a lot of times from people who maybe grew up in poverty or grew up in like kind of working class situations. They think about how they can get back give back right. to the community. So as I was working for Nokia, I was doing work in Shanghai and I just could not get past the fact that, you know, hear me from Beach Park, Illinois, 13,000 people <laughs> are now like running this global team and sitting in Shanghai, China. Like, you know, my grandparents have since, since passed, but they literally never understood like how I made my money or how I made a <laughs> living, right? Like they could not grasp the amount of money I was paid and I was paid based on having ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And so I always felt compelled to, to really give back and to show people that there was another way of work, to, way to work. Um, you know, a lot of my family, they, they were frontline workers, they worked with their hands. So, you know, could there be other opportunities out there? So during the time at Nokia, I conceptualized the idea of Global Language Project. And that was really based on my experience, you know, working abroad. Mm -hmm. You know, I was living in New York, Harlem at the time. And I thought, gosh, what if students had a chance to learn about global languages and learn about other cultures. And I was a volunteer in New York public schools at the time, and I saw that there was this real climate on testing, and I think testing is definitely important. But in the real world, in the work world, it's about right. how do you communicate? How do you get along with others? How do you, you know, partner across perceived differences? And I felt like there wasn't enough attention given to that. So I launched that program in 2008. We started with 30 students, half of them learning Mandarin Chinese, half of them <laughs> learning Spanish. Spanish. And 
it was amazing to see when I brought in funders, because it was a social venture, when I brought them into the schools and they would see, you know, Jamal, who's learning Mandarin, mm -hmm. they'd be like, oh, these kids are so smart. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, they thought they were smart because they were speaking Mandarin, right? But what I would tell funders and tell people who would come in is that these kids, all of these kids have potential. It's about the content that's being in, uh, put in front of them. It's about yep. the opportunities that are being afforded to them. And that, when I look back now, that was like my first workforce play, right? So I was able to have this career that I never dreamed of, you know, as even an undergrad or a youth. And now I'm giving these kids through Global Language Project exposure to another language. And, and ultimately, you know, what could be a calling card for them. I had hoped in higher education and ultimately the workforce. And I'll tell you one story. When we were looking for people at Nokia to hire, we get, you know, literally, you know, a couple hundred resumes sure. for a position. And we, you know, usually, you know, and everyone knows what school you go really matters. You know, they look at the Ivies and they look at the ones under mm -hmm. that. But when we were growing a business in South America, Brazil or China, we needed someone who spoke the native language. And right. we didn't care if they went to Harvard or if they went to Cooney, you know, right there mm -hmm. in New York City. Like that, because they had the language skills, their, their resume would go to the top. And so that's what I wanted. I wanted kids to get a second look in the world of work. And, and really that is the work that I'm doing now with the future of work and at New Profit is how to take workers, learners who may have been discounted because of failed systems, failed education systems, right? Yep. And give them a chance to upskill and have opportunities that are afforded by the future of work. Yeah, I've been talking to so many people lately about edu the education system and just the, the skill learning or, or lack thereof, really, that individuals are, are sort of afforded. When you were working with, when you get these applications, right, and you say, like, you know, schools are you know, schools is sort of the priority in, in a lot of different industries. Was it mostly people coming from public schools, private schools? Was it, did you see that there was just a lack of opportunity um, in certain areas of, the, areas of the country that there still is now when you were looking at those applications? Has anything changed? Has, have things moved forward in, in that area at all? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple things. One is I just want to go back to your point about the traditional skills not being taught. The, the problem with that is that those traditional skills like language, they become like a door opener, right? An mm -hmm. on-ramp to additional yeah. opportunities. And so like, if you don't have those, those are conversation starters when you're in an interview, right? Yeah, They can absolutely. get you to the next level. Yep. Um, they can get you into more of an elite school, a college will mm. then translate to a better job, right? It just goes on and on. It's compounding when you think about these early educational opportunities. Um, so when I was looking at those resumes, you know, a lot of people went to Ivy Leagues. They mm. went to private schools where they were starting languages. If you look at New York, where I spent most of my professional career, you know, private schools start a second language in kindergarten. I mean, it's just wow. standard curriculum. And if you look at the public schools, that's just not the case. It's, it's later in life. And then it's, it's optional, right? You may have a day here or a day there. Right. And so I would say, you know, if, if private school parents are paying $60,000 a year and the ones that I've met, you know, they're, are, they're very particular about what their children would be learning if they didn't think it was a value. Hmm. Um, it wouldn't be in the curriculum. But you know it's a value because they had jobs like I had, right? Sure. Interfacing internationally and, and they travel, you know, personally internationally. So people understand the power of that and the power just of communication. And the firm, you know, that I'm with now, New Profit, we're, we're a venture philanthropy firm um, where we invest in social entrepreneurs. And, and really how we think about that is investing in opportunities and entrepreneurs who are like breaking down barriers between mm -hmm. people and opportunities. 
And a lot of it is thinking about what are the small things that we can do? Like language learning may seem simplistic, but when you think about it as a suite of things or steps, mm -hmm. it could be transformative. So we're, we're regularly looking for these small opportunities that's seemingly small that could be, game, could be a game changer in a person's life. What are you seeing right now that gets you excited, right? That you're passionate about. So I, I want, let's talk a little bit about New Profit and the future of work, the sort of fund that is looking to invest in, in entrepreneurs and companies, like looking at upskilling low-income and entry-level workers. What are you excited about? What do you see that is really intriguing that you are optimistic, right? That things, you know, will change and will progress in, in these different ways. Yeah, so I am... You know, my work now is like my passion project yeah. and ideal it's job. It's amazing. Like, it's like the greatest job of all time. <laughs> it's like, so you have to think about this. You know, I lead this $15 million future work global fund to invest in entrepreneurs and companies that are developing like innovative technologies to upskill like workers who are experiencing low wages, workers who are at the entry level, like mm -hmm. the people I care most about. And we have like this whole focus on funding proximate entrepreneurs. So thinking about folks who share the lived experience and who have experienced this problem of being underemployed, who have experienced like a terrible education system, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and thinking about like bringing these entrepreneurs and funding their solutions to help their communities and thus, you know, help the entire country. So one, I think I just have the best job in the world. And when we launch this Future Work Brand Challenge, we're giving away $6 million and really what the challenge is, the partnership between XPRIZE and MIT Solves. And if you don't know XPRIZE, they are widely credited yeah. Yeah, with launching the private space market. And then MIT Solves is MIT. What we're doing post-COVID is thinking about how we can rapidly reskill 25,000 workers who've been displaced by COVID mm -hmm. and how to get them a living wage and in jobs within the next 24 months. So really thinking about what are these skills of the future? And we say of the future, we mean they're not estimated to be automated in the next three to five years. So we're, again, we're, we're really excited about the fact that we are aiming at placing 25,000 people in work and that we're too, the most important part I think is like reducing the time to train Mm. With the historic unemployment numbers, you have so many people who are unemployed. So they may have worked in the hospitality you know, industry for like 10 or 15 years. And now they're thinking about, gosh, I have to find a new job and a new career. You know, how can I take the skills that I've gained in one sector and how could they be transferable to another? And these are not folks who can just take four years off and go back to college, 100, No, right? 100%. So, yeah, yeah. Was... So that's why we're thinking about, like, how do we, like, deploy these kind of rapid training mm -hmm. to, like, help them get the skills faster and less costly? And I always, if people who hear, who hear this podcast a lot will, will, will probably get, get tired of me saying this, but... Uh... I, I had a great conversation with Ruben Harris, the mm. CEO at Career Karma. Yes. And I mean, I think what, what they're doing is really, really taking what, what you say to heart is that how do we train people quickly in high paying skill jobs, right? It, it's like, we can, we can do this because the curriculum's there, there's these schools there, these boot camps are ready and available. And he's like, the problem we have is that a lot of people don't have laptops. Right. We're, we're making this big transition from from work from home. Well, there's a lot of people who actually can't work from home. Right. Because they don't have a personal computer. Right. They don't have a laptop where they can, you know, train themselves at night. Right. When people are sleeping and kind of just go to work then and just really train themselves and have those precious time to really work on, on their skill sets. They don't have that ability. 
and why we have millions of people without laptops at home and, and even kids, right, in, in school districts, but also working adults that can't go home and, and better themselves. Like, there's simple fixes there we can solve, right? It's like, how do we even get the, tool, the tools in the hands of the people that need it to then execute the curriculum that, you know, is built by XPRIZE or MIT Solve or, or New Profit or Future of Work, whatever it is, but they need the tools to actually like better themselves, right? So it's like, there's still foundational problems we need to solve. Yeah, and I just tell you, I met Ruben about six months ago and we hit it off. It's like, oh, he's, he's almost amazing. like soulmates. Right? Oh, he's greatest. He's awesome. And I think one challenge that he's tackling, which I think is brilliant, it's also, it's one is the laptops, right? Mm -hmm. um, Two is like, we need to realize that there's still like 19 million Americans who don't have like fixed broadband service, 100%. right? Yeah, so we, we, yep. we take that for granted, but like a lot of people are accessing the internet on their phone or it's at low speed. So like yep. a lot of this robust training, like people can't get access to that. Mm -hmm. And then I think what's also brilliant about Ruben is he's like really solving for this information asymmetry. So like, there's so many programs. There's so many mm -hmm. boot camps. Like, how yeah. do you know which one is right for you? Right. Where you should invest your time, your effort, and your money. And you're talking about people who don't have the luxury of a lot of excess time. And so yep. what yep. he's doing is curating a, a personalized, almost service, where he's giving recommendations. Yeah. Like, based on your lifestyle, your interests, this would be the, the, the boot camp or the op training opportunity for you. And I think we need much more of that, especially yeah. in this moment. I think what he's doing, I think what this Future of Work Fund could do, right? Like I think connecting the capital to really innovative companies and entrepreneurs is how we get there. And that's why I'm so fascinated with the idea of finance finally coming into the social impact space. Because I think it's been a long journey where, where the allocation of, of, of massive capital has not traditionally went into the, these neighborhoods for so long. I always tell people, I was like, I grew up in, in New Orleans and guess what? The neighborhoods look exactly the same as they did three decades ago. So that's like a failure on us as a society or us as a government, us as, as a community, really. And it's like, how, how can we, we have all the tools to change these things. These things are not insurmountable. It's just, I think for so long, we just haven't had the allocation of capital looking at these, looking at these areas and saying, this is investable. This is these are individuals that can provide so much for the economy, right? It's really getting people to understand like the, the future value of their investment in, in people, right? And in, in skilled workers and how that just really creates, you know, trillions of dollars more in, into the economy and, and either, and in, and the consumer economy, right? Cause once people get really good jobs, they'll buy things, right? <laughs> right. So it's uh, these things can be accomplished, right? Like what, what can we do? Like what is, new profits sort of vision what is your vision right because you are the allocator of capital right you're in a great position yeah i think the beautiful thing about capital and money you know people say you know the good and bad of money is that you know it can be used as a lever um you know i did my uh, doctoral research at the harvard graduate school of education and i remember you know taking a class at the business school and they would talk about the the base of the pyramid you mm. know the the people who they felt were like not educated you know, not making a lot of money. And I often, you know, I was like, oh, those are my people, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, these are people that I grew up with. But to your point, they're still consumers, right? right. Opportunity at Work just came out with research with, in collaboration with Accenture. They estimate that there's 71 million Americans without a 
four-year degree that have the potential for higher skilled jobs and higher wages. Think about their earning potential collectively, like what that would mean to your point, to our economy, it would be significant. And so at New Profit, the way we think about this is in two ways. One is we're trying to invest in entrepreneurs who understand that, who really are about capitalism, understand the market, but understand it's not you know an either or scenario, that we can actually invest and do good at the same time. And the second is we understand as a, as a funder, as an investor, mm -hmm. that we can incentivize the behavior we want to see in the world, right? So when mm -hmm. we did this future work grand challenge, there's a couple things that we did. One, we focused it on skilling, and that's with XPRIZE. With MIT, we know that there's a narrative that people just need to be skilled. People need to have more education. Mm -hmm. But that's not the complete story, right? People also need wraparound support, career navigation, similar to what Career Karma is mm -hmm. offering, right? And so with MIT Solves, we are incentivizing and we're going to fund entrepreneurs who are thinking about in addition to upscaling, what are the wraparound services mm. that need to be present for a person to be able to, to actually get a job and to sustain a job? And what's, what we're hoping to do is spur this innovation while pushing and like putting equity at the core of everything that we do. And, you know, what we say is what, what you don't, what you can't measure may not matter or doesn't matter. <laughs> um, we put some numbers on, like we, we literally have said and made a commitment that at least 40% of our dollars are going to go to black, Latinx and indigenous innovators and entrepreneurs. And we want any entrepreneur who's applying, regardless of race, regardless of gender, to tell us how they're proximate to the community. Like mm -hmm. what insights do they have that they're bringing to bear in their solution or their innovation? Do you think that access to, to capital has been one of the biggest barriers for communities to minority communities to sort of have that opportunity to excel in, in certain areas is that like a massive shift of ideology from from before i mean if you look at and this goes for you know vc funding for you know for-profit yeah. entrepreneurs and you know non-profit entrepreneurs you know less than one percent of vc funding goes to people of color so start mm -hmm. right there yep. in the social sector we're not much better either right mm, you're talking yeah. about less than like three percent of funding goes to organizations who are led by mm. people of color mm -hmm. and so at new profit what we've identified why is it the problem it's more than just the capital we're missing out on the insights that mm. people who are proximate may have and i'll give you two examples of investments that we made um one is we invested in this organization organization called Girl Trek. Mm -hmm. um, and what they did is just phenomenal. Um, they are the biggest organization um, targeting African-American Black women and getting them outside walking in their community. So one of it is about getting them the moving and about health, but the other piece of it is having them be change agents in their community. So when you think about other philanthropies or impact investment uh, investors who've invested in Black women's health, They've done it only from a weight loss perspective. So that's mm. only one piece of the problem. What Girl Trek found out when they did their, their research is that when you get black women walking in their community, they fix things. They get involved in business. <laughs> they see a sidewalk that's like broken, like they're calling, right? Oh, yeah. like if you're driving in your car and you don't see it, mm, you right. may not be there to like call it to someone's attention. So that's, that's kind of one example where I'm like, 
people who are not proximate really missed what a key opportunity really could be. And, and that's what we're looking in our organizations. You know, another one that I've been recently obsessed with is, the, is this organization called Daughters of Rosie. The woman who founded it was an engineer by trade, worked in manufacturing. She looked to her left and her right, and she didn't see any other women, and she certainly didn't see a lot of huh. people of color. And, and she was like, why is this? Just out of curiosity, right? And what she noticed was the difference in training wasn't about the skills training for these like on-ramp jobs to manufacturing. A lot of them are based on like what people might call soft skills, human skills. Right. And so what she started doing in the San Francisco area is training people who used to be Lyft and Uber drivers and giving them literally, you know, 16 weeks of training and they are getting manufacturing jobs with living wages and benefits and on ramps to, to better positions. And so again, you know, she had that unique in, an insight because one, being a woman, two, right. like she felt like she was kind of the minority in that instance of like, why aren't there more people who look like me and what can I do about it? And most people would have thought, and I, myself included, if it was manufacturing, I was like, oh, it must be just the thing about education, right? Mm -hmm. But it really wasn't at all. It was really about those traditional soft skills that was the differentiator. An interesting topic that, that I think is, is a little bit new because I think with, with cities, we, we could kind of see the issues, right? And we can, like you said, we could have people on the ground that are approximate to it. And then also approximate to us though, right? Like, like you, right? You're in the city. So like it's, there's, there's things that you can see and people you can connect with and talk to and kind of have this, this funnel of just ideas and problem solving. And one thing that's really interesting to me, and I think it's, we're sort of seeing it come to fruition now is just because of the landscape are changing with everything with the world, right? It's sort of the rural issue of the transition is not pretty for, for Americans in rural areas too, right? It's, it's been, obviously manufacturing has, has sort of gone away and those jobs are just never going to come back in, in the way they were. Do, do you personally, have you had experience or, or new profit? Do, do they look at rural entrepreneurs as something that's interesting as well? Because they are approximate to different issues, right? Than cities completely. Yeah, we, we actually think about it as a lot about rural and we're thinking about that in, as it relates to the future of work. Um, there's a lot of false narratives about rural. You know, a lot of times when people think rural, they automatically think, you know, that it's a white, you know, uh, lower income population. That is not true. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of diversity in rural. Um, you'll see, you know, you know, 8% of rural, you know, is black community, for example, yep. um, identifies as black. So one is what we try to do with our work, and we have this um, investment arm where we call systems change, and we're investing heavily in rural communities. One is, one, helping to change the narrative about what rural looks like and who we're helping. Sure, 100%. And then, and then two, what we see as an opportunity with you know COVID, unfortunately, is that many companies are seeing that distributed work is possible, remote work is possible. Yep. And we see that as an opportunity for rural, right? Because you may have someone that grew up you know, in Illinois, maybe a small town, right. and may not want to move to the Bay Area. It doesn't mean that they're not ambitious. They may like their lifestyle, right? You know, New yeah, York, absolutely. Boston, not for everyone. And so if we're able to give people in rural communities a, a second look, right? If they have the skills and we're thinking about companies actually targeting rural employees and if we're incentivizing innovators from rural, we feel like we can really close that gap, right? We can one, give a platform to the innovators that are there and, and by doing that, attract companies and employers who'd want to come to these areas. 
it's hard to to look forward a little bit now right because there's just so many different variables that are affecting society at the moment but when you look at goals and sort of successes that either the fund has or new profit in general has like what is what are some of the goals that like i said you or the firm want to do within you know five to ten years is is that goal setting or success trends been changed at all with COVID or do you see a similar path? It just, it just looks different from maybe the companies that you invest in. Yeah. So we have doubled down on what we, a strategy that we call inclusive impact. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes back to investing in entrepreneurs who are proximate to the issues. And we're really trying to shift the capital markets, right? Mm-hmm. To invest more equitably. So to invest in entrepreneurs of color, um, there is really no good reason why there's this, um, capital access gap. And mm-hmm. we know um, through our organization and being an intermediary, we've been around for 20 years, we bring a lot of credibility to the space. Um, and so we've seen that when we make a first investment in an organization, an entrepreneur, that there's follow-on investors. So we know that we have a leadership role to play there. And two, you know, I mentioned my organization, you know, my initiative, Future of Work, that we're aiming to invest 40% of our dollars into entrepreneurs of color. But we're looking at that as an organization as a whole mm. across all of our investment. Like we are actively striving to change the face of our portfolio. And we've learned over the years, right, that a lot of the evaluation and metrics and norms that we had and how we evaluated investments were really based on pattern recognition. And if you look at pattern recognition, right, you might get the same type of entrepreneur over and over again. And that's why you see people getting follow-on investments and funding, and -hmm. they all fit a mold. What we're trying to do is actively break that mold, you know, putting more dollars in the hands of women, um, putting more dollars in the hands of proximate communities and innovators. Yeah, the one going back to a little bit what you said before with with funding for minorities, but also funding for women is astronomically low. It's 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 really insane the venture capital money that doesn't go into women founders, and I think that's that's sort of changing it as well as as sort of the new landscape shifts. Men for so long have had the opportunity to to change the world's problems, and we haven't done a great job. So I'm like, I think we should probably let. Let the women handle it from here is, is what I think. I would have to agree with you. No, but I, I would say, though, you know, what happens is, is that, like, when you go into the VC world and it's dominated by white men, right, mm-hmm. a woman could come in with an idea based on her lived experience. And I've had many women entrepreneurs come to me for investments and tell me stories where, you know, they had ideas around, like, feminine mm-hmm. products or about right, totally. and birth. Yeah, 100%. And as an investor, you... You look at the data, but at the end of the day, you really go with your kind of gut instinct and pattern recognition. So all things being considered, you're placing a bet, right? And a lot of that is subjective. And so if you don't Mm. share the lived experience or have someone that you trust that's giving you advice, you may pass on that deal. And that's why it's like, it behooves everyone to have a more diverse team, to have some women at the table, because like a lot of women have been passed on who have had brilliant ideas just because the person in front of them didn't get it because it wasn't their lived experience. You know, they've never nursed or had a baby. Totally. They may not know the complications that come with that or the complexities. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I've always... I was raised by very by strong women, you know, and, and I just know what uh, you know how how courageous and, and brave uh, that they were in my life, and, and I've always I, I was always so, so fascinated when I, when I hear funding and, and capital not being allocated to women. I'm just like that's usually the person in the household who like budgets <laughs> budgets everything right and does and does all the the things that need to be needed for like the household to work right. I was like women would be amazing at business because they know how to 
actually like have it function correctly and have all these pieces go in order, right? I mean, if you could run a household, you could run a company. I think the interesting thing is like when I think about investors, I don't think anyone sits at the table and says to themselves, we're not investing in any women, right? But I think the problem, what happens is because when you're not holding yourself accountable, it's hard when if you're not taking a step back and saying, okay, what does the makeup of our portfolio look like, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of diverse, you know, race, ethnicity, and gender? And so one thing that we've done with the Future of Work Grand Challenge, you know, I talked a bit about the innovators and proximity, but we also have a judging panel um, of STEAM judges, academics, entrepreneurs who are going to be helping us select the solutions coming out of the challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted to make sure that those judges were diverse in terms mm-hmm. of their experience, their lived experience, and their background, because we know that by having that diverse group group of judges, that they are going to come to a better decision and pointing us towards solutions that really could have some uh, track record and also have some potential. So we're really thinking about equity and like how we diversify and like every level of this challenge. Because we feel like when we think about the future of work, which many people are now calling the present of work, it's like all hands on deck. Yeah. We need everyone from all corners to bring their ideas to get people back to work and to get like our economy back on track. So I'll kind of end with, and you don't have to to share if you if you can or you don't you don't want to right now. But like as far as the fund, what is what is sort of the goal? Is there a certain amount of companies that you want to fund with the Future of Work Fund? Is there a couple more companies you can share that you guys invested in, or is it is it just not not there yet? Oh, no, definitely we can share. So what we'll do, like right now, we've had about 600 people apply for Mm -hmm. funding. Come November, we're going to make 15 investments. And of those investments, what we're going to do is connect them to partners that we have in communities at local workforce Mm -hmm. boards Mm -hmm. and job centers. And we're actually going to let them test their innovations with actual job seekers who are looking for employment. And the ones that have the most traction, we're going to invest in an additional $1.5 million. Out of those, I think what's going to be you know, exciting about this competition is the innovators who are able to prove that their trainings, that their wraparound services are successful, um, they're going to get new customers in these job centers and workforce boards and the new profit, we're doing follow-on investments in these mm. companies. So we're going to stay with them and make sure that they actually grow and then actually introduce them to other investors. I think you're such in an amazing spot right now because I think that the transformation I think we're at a, a the best time in history for a mass transformation like this just because we have the technology and the people you know leading the movement that the capabilities to make a transition like this fast is much more it's just much more possible than it was before right when you go through transitions workforce transitions like this was like industrial revolution things like that that takes like decades right for people for that transition a lot of people are hurt or a lot of people suffer in these transitions, but we kind of have the opportunity now with the allocation of capital, real capital, right? Coming into to areas that have never been invested in before. But then we also have the component of technology being really, really high level um, and really accessible to most people. And I think like we talked about earlier, we, there's so much work to be done there. Um, but I think these two converging elements, I think make the transition and the future of work seem much more positive where we can involve more people that transition goes rather than leave so so many people behind maybe like before and other transitions would you agree 
or no? <laughs> yeah, no, Grant, no, Grant, I would definitely agree. And I just like to add, it's also platforms like yours, right? Mm. And how you had talked to Ruben and you've done a session mm -hmm. with him and now you're talking to me. Like you have more people who are in the conversation saying, how can we make this world work right. for more people, right? right? And, and are using their platforms in different ways to get the word out. Because I've found one thing, especially since COVID, there's a lot of people out there who want to help who want to invest and who want to do the right thing. And it's platforms like this where we give people ideas. Like we launched this kind of crowd future work brand challenge. You know, I am sharing the resources we have widely and we're being very transparent about our learnings because we want other people to do it. To some people, you know, $15 million may sound like a lot, but when, again, when you're talking about right. the number of people who are in need, we need more investors more organizations to begin trying to invest with this equity lens and to think about like how we pool resources. So like I said, I'm, I'm excited. We're in this moment where mm -hmm. not only do we have the technology, but I also feel like we have the will to yep. do it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Angela. I was thinking about like, oh, Dr. Angela, that sounds like <laughs> A great, a great TV show, right? Like a great, great morning show. Like, like wake up with Dr. Angela. Like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I appreciate you so much. I mean, you speak so, so eloquently about the subject matter. And just, I think that I, I'm optimistic about the future. And it sounds like you are as well. Cause I think there's so many amazing, diverse people in the sector trying to make things happen. And that can only breed breed positive outcomes. So I appreciate all you're doing, all that New Profit's doing. Best of luck this year, obviously, and, and obviously for years to come. So I appreciate your time. Oh, me too. You take care.